and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Welcome, friend Liz, to my episode with John Denovan, recorded at his historic home in Northbridge, Sydney. John Denovan is special counsel at Denton's, one of the largest law firms in the world. Having been booted out of partnership. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that, how you got booted out. Is recognised as a leading lawyer in financial services regulation in Australia. John was the first honorary member of the Mortgage and Finance Association of Australia in recognition of his contribution to the mortgage industry. John and his team act for many leading authorised deposit-taking institutions and non-authorised deposit-taking institutions. Welcome, John. That was a mouthful. Contribution to the mortgage industry. (laughs) Sounds like you've had a lot of mortgages. (laughs) (laughs) How many have you had, John? Too many. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to take you right back, not to where you've got to, but where you started. And you started your, well, even before you started your career, you went to St- Scots College in Sydney. Hated every minute of it. Has it always been so prestigious? Um, I don't think anyone thought about it back in those days. I was a, uh, uh, I won a scholarship to go there mm. and um, most of the guys were, farmers' sons in those days, and the eastern suburbs of Sydney was not particularly known for wealthy people. Um, and why did you hate it? Uh, I was fat and shy and um, didn't have any friends and probably a conch. And what's a conch? A conch is someone who studies and doesn't play around and muck up. <laughs> well, I mucked up. I mucked up because I used to get the cane. On, on Monday morning, the math teacher called Mr Grant would say, Denovan, you have a Saturday. He had a bit of an accent. And I'd say, why, sir? And he'd say, we'll find out during the week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, every Saturday morning, I'd have a Saturday detention. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so is that why you chose law? <laughs> Being boring and fat? <laughs> I actually, well, this is a, you want the true story? No, I want the true story, no, John. We story. all want the true all right, story. Well, I originally, uh, it was a very religious time in those days mm. and everybody went to Sunday school and church on the weekends and it was a religious, and I was very keen on the minister's daughter, so I thought I might do well if I uh, became a, a, a priest, not a priest, but a minister mm. in the congregational church a church which has since been cancelled, I think, for lack of interest. Um, and uh, so that's what I was thinking of doing, and then I decided that that wasn't right and I'd like to become a teacher. But 
and I still want to be a teacher and I think I've ended up being a teacher. I think that's actually what I've done with my legal career. But um, I didn't do teaching because I got a Commonwealth scholarship to do law. Um, and so, oh well, I'll do that. And that was two particularly Sydney University or was could you choose which university? I think that there was only Sydney in those days. Well, that was a long time ago I then. I don't think there was any other. Uh, and, and we were pretty pretty big year because we were about the first year to have any women in it. And our woman was Helen Keenan. Oh, wow. Who's come to be the senator. Mm. That's um, a long time ago. In fact, one of the best things that I think that the Whitlam government did with providing free education was that it really meant that women started to go to university mm. in much greater numbers. Mm. That was a terrific time, mm. a terrific time to be alive, as, as, as has you know, the entire period of my career. Mm. Well, I'm very grateful for free education because I wouldn't have ended up at university, I suspect, without it. Um, so, but you've been a partner at this law firm that you, for 58 years. No, I've worked if, for you. Well, you've worked there for 58 years, all right. One afternoon I took off. <laughs> <laughs> Did you start, were you one of the people that started that law firm? No, John Gaden started the law firm in 1922. Mm. And so when I joined, uh, there was basically, uh, I went into the city office and there was John Gaden. And he was the traditional family lawyer who uh, sat there and dressed in a beautiful suit and was the absolute gentleman and charged his clients always four guineas. That was basically what he charged. And he was the, the type of lawyer that you can imagine out of Dickens. And it was uh, am amazing when uh, some other people moved into that office, Peter Bowen and Gordon Stewart, and brought a commercial life that I didn't understand was connected. They were businessmen. And I think they might have been one of the very first businessmen being lawyers. Um, and they, they had a lot of firsts, like we were the first firm to have a single name, Gaydens, mm. uh, which is a trend which has been followed elsewhere. They opened an office in New Guinea they, and, and they talked about plain English, which mm. was an extraordinary thing. And I still remember my first lesson it's when I, uh, one of my early jobs was to send bills out to clients. You know, you do the administrative things. And I'd write, would you please pay at your earliest convenience? And Gordon Stewart said to me, why do you want to be paid at a very old toilet? <laughs> <laughs> your earliest convenience. He said, to say, please pay soon. Mm. Or don't say anything. And better not to say anything because you're sending them a bill, I suspect the client will know what to do with it. <laughs> That's true. And they were interesting lessons. And you know, Did you have that sort of things that you learn when you're very young and you just carry them with you for life? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I'll have to give it a bit of thought about what I learnt in mm. my earliest <laughs> careers. They were, only, they were, they were great leaders. Well, uh, I actually was going to ask you about your, the PNG connection because I noticed mm. that you were admitted in PNG in 1983. Did you go to PNG with the firm or was it a particular case? No, well, the firm opened in PNG in 1969, I think, mm. and there was some discussion that I should um, go. 
but they said you, if you're going up there, you should be married first. And so I, being single at the time, that required an extra step, which... <laughs> which you didn't take for a few years <laughs> after that. So, um, and, and it was always been a very successful practice up there and mm. still running. And um, so when I became managing partner, I would go up to New Guinea office often to um, have, have a bit, wave at the troops and have a bit of a break and contribute where I could. And uh, as part of doing that and part of owning the business, I had to be admitted up there at that time. Oh, I see. Uh, and, uh, so I thought it must have been some big case or mining case no, no, that no, drew it was you just there. Part of how did you partnership? How did you manage then? Uh, I spoke to an, another interviewee, Margaret Arthur, and she said that she'd spent some time in PNG, but. Mm realised that it was probably a little bit too dangerous when it looked like they were going to be, I don't know, assaulted by a crowd when there was minor traffic bingle that they were involved in. How did you manage that safety risk in PNG? Well, originally it wasn't unsafe when it was part Mm. of Australia. In 1969 it was still a territory of Australia and it was paradise. It was absolute paradise. And we had owned houses up there which we Mm. had our staff staying in. The, the country's unbelievably beautiful. Then they got their independence, and that's when the rot set in to the country um, because the Australian police left um, and uh, population grew, and you know, they, they were very backward <clears throat> in, the, in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were. They just went backwards. Yeah. They just went backwards as people gravitated into the city, and it became <clears throat> incredibly violent. And uh, at one stage, I said to the staff, look, I'm very concerned about your um, safety and would you like to no longer work there? And they said, look, people are still... And this was a time when New York was very dangerous. They said, law firms in New York are continuing to trade, mm. so we will continue to trade. And we, we, we had some problems. We had, had uh, one partner who... Uh, was knifed with a screwdriver when he was getting petrol for his car, but otherwise we've been blessed with no major problems. Um, and John, I was going to ask you this later on in the interview, but I might ask you now. So, what in particular does a managing partner do? As little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was, I think there's managing partners and managing partners mm. uh, in our model. Um, I was probably the first managing partner as such, or one of the first, because that was when the firm had grown from being just two or three partners to having maybe 10. Um, And I thought that the way to do it was to lead by example. So I was always a top bringer in of clients and a top fee earner, um, and found a bit of time to just check that everybody else was having fun. And again, I had this great lesson, and this actually makes being managing partner very easy. A great lesson was taught to me by my mentor, Gordon Stewart. And that is, if someone asks you something, say yes, unless there's a bloody good reason to say no. And that's been my mantra all my life. If, if someone comes and says, I'd like to do this, 
a lot of people have the instant reaction of saying, why, or no, or justify. But it's so much easier and will create more creativity and give the other people more confidence if you say, that's a good, well, not necessarily that's a good idea, but yes. <laughs> and yes, was that, so is that what you said to your staff? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I also had another rule that uh, everything that was secret or possibly secret was in this drawer here if you want to go and have a look. It was all before computer days. So we had no secrets. Everybody knew what everybody else got paid. And the mantra of the firm was, as soon as the partners are making a reasonable income, our job is to pay our staff as much as possible so that we get the best possible staff. And we did that. And uh, the, the evidence is in, in the cooking. Uh, I've still got people working with me who've been with me over 35 years. Wow, which is that's a long, a long time. And um, but you kept growing, John. Like mm. what? What's interesting to me in the Gaiden story is that it was, like you said, a very small firm. It would have been in the nineteen sixties if there mm. was if they brought on Gordon Stewart and who was the other bloke? Peter Bowen. Peter mm. Bowen mm. Um, and yourself mm. and John Gaiden. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm. you became partner later on. Yeah. Um, why did and um, when did you become partner then? I uh, can't remember. Probably about nineteen seventy-three, I think. So quite early. Quite you wouldn't early. have you wouldn't have graduated. No, I graduated in sixty-nine. Uh-huh. I just didn't ever get admitted. Uh, no, I, gra- I graduated in probably sixty-eight. Didn't get admitted till about nineteen seventy or something because I failed legal ethics five times. <laughs> I hold I hold the state record. You should be telling Actually, people that. I, I told a lie there. I failed it seven times. Um, I remember now, seven times. And, and it wasn't always my fault. I mean, the first time the uh, exam was out at uh, Sydney University, mm. and of course the law school wasn't, so law school was yes. in town. Mm. And I couldn't find the bloody exam room, so I failed for lack of attendance. The next time I was too busy at work to go, the third time is I had been studying the book that had been written by John Gaydon, yes. which was about bookkeeping and all the rules. However, that was so desperately out of date that I failed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was your third or fourth well, go? I my fourth go. The fifth go, I by mistake sat where they were doing commercial law, <laughs> so that was the wrong exam. I think then I was busy and then on the... Next time I finally passed. <laughs> so it wasn't so. that your ethical um, compass was wrong. It was yeah. just that you're... just <laughs> com- complete incompetence at navigating. That. But the other thing is, of course, well, perfect, uh, perfect segue into yeah. managing partners. Yeah, and, and, and going out to to the, the university, there were all these pretty girls. There were no pretty girls <laughs> in, a, in 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 town and the all schools. It was a, so it it was was a very exciting. ugly building, wasn't it? It was, but it was a very wonderful building. It had this mm. wonderful lift driver called Ron. So we had to drive in the old days, yeah. we had a lift driver. And Ron was the most marvellous person under the sun and the interesting person. And he somehow managed to organise most of the students to become very good at playing 500 <laughs> cards. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, hey, and, and, and I, which brings me to another very pathetic story out of New Guinea. I enjoyed playing 500 so much with my colleagues that when 
two of them went up to New Guinea, we decided we would continue playing 500 by mail. What? <laughs> well, how else could you do it, you see? So we'd, we'd, we'd post 10 cards to a person, and each person, and, and they'd only wait a while for them to write back, because there's no, no other way to leave the phone connections were terrible. So you'd get a letter with six hearts about a month later. <laughs> and it was a failure. It was a complete failure. Actually, that um, we were talking about this at work the other day about the mail and the way that legal practices have changed mm. because it's just become so busy. Whereas before, you only had files. You'd write a letter. You'd wait two weeks. You'd get a response. Nowadays, you write an email and you're lucky if five minutes. <laughs> no, you it's don't terrible. Have a, it is a terrible. Um, impact on the quality of life, and and it was wonderful because you could you could you could even do a little white lie and say I haven't received the letter, knowing damn well your secretary had, but she hadn't placed it on your desk yet. Yeah, <laughs> and and I think too, I wonder if it's changed the quality of legal services because one of the things that I think is quite good is if you've written something or received something, if you have to think about what you need, mm. how you respond, give it a bit of thought. I think sometimes that's not a bad thing. I think it's a very good mm. thing. I, I make that mistake very regularly because I'm a fanatic about providing service. See, the trouble is the email is now a phone call. People don't ring you, they email you instead. Yes. And so, our mantra at work is you receive an email, you must acknowledge it straight away. It's like saying hello on the phone. So it can become a little tiresome, but some people write a note saying, got it, we'll get back to you and tell them when you're going to get back to them. And uh, the people I'm working with, my boss partner girl, um, she's very good at it because she will build in the time for the answer, say, got your email, I'll reply next Monday, setting an expectation for the time. Try and respond straight away and you'll, you'll do a three o'clock in the morning wake up in your mm. bed and think, oh. In fact, I did this morning, I woke up at 4am about something I'd written yesterday. It wasn't an email, it was uh, checking some work for one of the staff members and I thought, Oh, I've got another aspect about that. <laughs> it doesn't change the advice, but it makes me more yes. but more certain that the advice I gave was correct because it was trying to interpret a piece of dodgily written legislation. I think uh, sometimes sleeping on it overnight. It's funny, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? How does your brain work? You wake up at four o'clock in the morning and you think section 86. <laughs> <laughs> really? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, don't know if that I'm that much of an attention to detail lawyer, John. <laughs> ah, but see, you've got to have it. You've got to have your tricks. I uh, developed very early a trick in the days when I was an absolute terrified young lawyer, and I'd, I'd have all these people um, ask me difficult questions, and I'd know the answer, but I could never remember numbers. I still can't remember numbers. I can't remember my own phone number. Uh, I, I remember my 
very first girlfriend's number because it was B O double one seven five, and I used to laugh at her because it was B O. She said, "Your number's F U two one three one." So, so, but my trick was that whenever I said, what's your authority for that? I used to say section 12, without ever stating what act. And, <laughs> and, and section 12 was a useful section because it said you had to be in writing. Oh, right. You know, in the Convancing Act in New South Wales. And so people <laughs> I thought go you were talking thought, about oh, oh, oh. section 12 of the ASIC no, Act. No, no. I would say you're, you're living a too shallow a life. <laughs> I never did conveyancing. That was the problem. Yeah, it's weird. Especially in New South Wales yeah, conveyancing. conveyancing stuff. Um, I was going to go back. We were talking about the law firm. Mm. So how did it happen that you more, like, what drove, because you would have been one of a few partners that always made the decision about to keep growing and to keep merging with other firms. Mm. Why did you do that? Well, we actually never merged at all. Um until more recent times. Mm. So the growth was just uh, internal and it, it was driven, I think, by Peter and, and Gordon who both had extensive property interests and once you start becoming known in the property world, it feeds on itself. Uh, and I, I started doing a bit in property as well as a sort of a hobby do a day's work at the office and go back and paint the terrace at Paddington um, and come to work the next day completely exhausted <laughs> and go back and do it again the next day, but you're young so you can do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, we made it. It was a very interesting decision. In 1973, we decided we will never do B to C. We will never deal with consumers, mums and dads. It is just too hard. Our fee structures aren't really going to work for them. Um, it's not what we're interested in. And so we don't do a good job. So mm. we will not, we might do the odd conveyance for a friend buying a house, uh, but otherwise we will be a B to B law firm. So we sort of drew a line like that. We didn't throw the clients out that we had, but we just didn't affect ask for anybody new. And we started referring mums and dads to other law firms. Uh, and we still do that. And so that made, uh, changed the complexion of it. And it gave us a story to tell. And the story to tell was we are a banking, we are a property law firm. And then um, I wandered off to, London University and did uh, a banking course over there and came back and said, I'm a banking expert. <laughs> when was this? I said, I've, I've done a whole week's training at <laughs> London, London University. And people believe you. Well, there was nobody else, but there was nobody else floating around doing what we were doing in those days. And very quickly, we ended up acting for basically every single finance company that existed because... In those days, it was impossible to get a home loan from a bank. So in order, mm. to, unless you'd been married the bank manager's daughter or something like that, um, I remember the first house I bought, in order to get a loan from a building society, I had to use another law firm, Lawrence & Lawrence, to act for me on the purchase instead of doing it myself. 
and by doing that they could advance me up the waiting list with the Permanent of Australia Building Society, now Westpac, uh, St George. Um, they could advance me up the list and I could get a home loan within six months. <gasps> six months. So the result of all that was that there were these things called finance companies that were owned mm -hmm. by the banks. Um, and the finance companies provided prompt finance, but not for homes. Um, and so there was custom credit, which was owned by uh, NAB and all the other banks had finance companies as well, FCA, um, AGC, not, and, and many others. And we sent it back for the ball because um, the, we'd simplified the documents down. Everybody else wanted to do a great big complex facility agreement. And I said, people understand a letter better. And if mm. you can write a clear letter that says, I am lending you $50,000 and you've got to pay it back, what else do you want to say? Well, that's true. Tell, tell me what else mm. you would like. And if I need 40 pages to say it, I'm doing something wrong. And so that was the, the big firms, and they weren't terribly big in those days, but they were still the same animals that are around today, like the Friedels and Allens and mm. Clayton Eats. They were very small, very, they, they were smaller than we became 10 years later mm. at that time. Uh, they um, were very technical lawyers with very long documents. And so our mantra was come to us and uh, we will make it simple, the customer will like it, the documents will get signed faster. And you can probably produce the documents yourself. So were you involved in the 1984 Credit Act legislation development? No, because we weren't mm. doing any consumer work at all. Oh, right, um, yeah. The only mm. reason I became involved in that was because for the finance companies I was acting for uh, and all that business mm. stopped dead when the interest rates went up in 1990. So at that stage, the interest rates were about 28% per annum, which was quite encouraging. And you can easily work out that no one can afford 28% per annum. No. Um, so what happened is everything stopped. So our business stopped. Um, and so if I'd known the word pivot, which is now a very <laughs> a sexy one, which was invented in the middle of the uh, of the coronavirus mm -hmm. affair. If I'd known the word pivot, I would have been able to say I'm pivoting, but we we pivoted, and uh, used our experience in the commercial lending to create funding for residential lending which was the birth of Aussie Home Loans and First Mac. Aha. Uh -huh. So you were involved in the birth of First Mac as well. Yeah, and, and there was five in the end, I think. Aussie Home Loans, First Mac, BMC, and someone else. Um, Honey, I think. And I spent two years working on getting the, uh, the finance. I found the finance, then 
married them up to the the people and off we went. Is that why you were on the border of Aussie homelands? Yes. How did how did that come about? So was it part of the deal that you had to be on the board? Or? No, no, no. Mm. Um, Tom Simon uh, liked me at that time. Um, <laughs> so what's happened there, John? <laughs> oh, I, I think I can't say. All right. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you privately. Okay. <laughs> I promise not to say anything. <laughs> um, su- suffice to say, we no longer friends. Well, all right. Which for which I'm sorry. Well, that's well. Um, I like to be friendly with people. Yeah, I'd, and we're not we're not enemies. We're just for we've gone our different ways. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm thinking about getting the first. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a nice house in Northbridge. Uh, I don't own this house. <laughs> it's my wife's. So you also held a directorship on the credit and investment ombudsman, where you represented industry interests. How is that different to a traditional board structure? Or do you think it was? Um, I'm trying to think back. I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm deputy chair of the bank. Mm, uh, I know. uh, uh, It's a public company and uh, and APRA regulated as an ABI. Mm. So you can imagine that that throws every aspect at you because you're worried about disclosure to shareholders and complying with the public company rules and worried about complying. It is compl- It is no wonder that the new banks that are trying to set up fail because the degree of regulation, we spend more than 30% of our overheads in just looking after regulation at the bank. And that's completely non-productive because mm. it's not actually... It, it, it's paper pushing to a large extent because what you should be tested by is your output. Anyway, I'm preaching now. How is the, the causal different? Um, I don't, as a board director, I don't think it's particularly different. Even on the board of this bank, we're involved in trying to run an efficient business. That's what the board's there about, an efficient, compliant business, and I think that's what the board... You're on the board there with yes. me, so what did you? Well, I don't know because I haven't question? been on. No, I haven't been on a because I was going to ask you how's that different to being the managing partner in a partnership, because that's also mm. you're running that business too. Yes. So what's different about running such a big partnership? Because at one stage, how many partners were there? Oh, that I you think were? we got up to. Probably eighty or something. Mm. I don't know. Um, so I'm just yeah. It's well, no there, there, trick there question. There is no difference. No. The, the really big size, there is no difference. Uh, when I ran it, it was a club. Yeah. It was a club. We all liked each other. We we're all each other's best friends. We we laughed and we partied and we worked hard. And we were a club, and I was just lucky enough. It was like going out on my boat. And I just happened to be the captain, so I'm steering. Mm. Uh, whereas uh, a board, and, and, and you can't run, I don't think you can run these really big law firms that way because you can't know the people. See, the, the difference that I see it is in a smaller law firm like we were, although it was quite large, you didn't know everybody. 
Mm. Now, you know that 10% of your staff, at least, are going to be idiots. But if you're small enough, you know which 10% it is. <laughs> when, when you get big, you've got no idea what which it is, and easily the 10% can grow to 20%. And amplify that with people working remotely, as they're doing now. I've got the, the two partners that sit next to me at work, share a desk, yep. partners, partners, and none of them have been seen for the last three years. <gasps> three years. Both of them, that bit. Hmm. Because wow. of COVID. And do you think that's... what? Look, I'm a big... You're speechless, aren't you? Uh, well, yes, I am. You're the first woman I've ever met that's speechless. This is... <laughs> this is a novel experience. Well, I was just going to say, how do you manage staff in that, even partners, because... Or... It's not my job, but yeah. um, uh, Sharon um, Atwater from AML, who's a very clever woman running mm. AML nowadays, you know what an AML is, it's a... It's a service company for banks uh, she told me what I think were the wisest words I've heard in many years about where we are it was a miracle that during COVID we suddenly pivoted to working remotely mm. and what we produced was adequate yes what was adequate then during lockdown is no longer adequate. The game has to be. In other words, the service was at an acceptable level, having regard to that everybody understood that you were locked away and you, you know there, mm. there'd probably be no great innovation or change and there wouldn't be a lot of mentorship and there wouldn't be a lot of team spirit. Take away the team spirit and mentorship by continuing to work remotely, you will not produce an adequate result leave alone a good mm. result. Do you think that's, do you think a hybrid model works? Well, we're hybrid. We're, our mm. staff are supposed to come in three days a week. Most don't. We can't convince them to come back. But interestingly, they come in in our Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne and Brisbane offices. They won't mm. come in in Sydney. And it's largely to do with the tyranny of distance in Sydney. I mean, I've got many staff who have a one and a half hour train trip each way Mm. each day on trains that don't necessarily always run and uh, it's quite a cost. Yes, it's a cost a in cost. terms of your work. And it's not as balance. if you can sit on the train necessarily and work. No. Uh, because you might have to stand. So I can understand why they don't want to come. I also uh, think, I mean, I know that I've done a lot of work in my years of practice over the phone with clients. But with people on the other side, I think you do have to meet them, or even with your clients. Mm. I think it, you just build a different relationship. Oh, holy. Mm. I find that if you don't see your cli like clients that you are really mm. wanting to negotiate good outcomes for and I you do everything mm. over the phone or by video, I don't think it produces such yeah. a good result. And, and it, it's not, you might say it's just because we're old fashioned, but mm. I think it's not, and I think the way you can tell is the way Zoom meetings end. Everyone gets to the end of the business and says, bye. 
Whereas if you're physically together in the same place, you make a few pleasantries. Yes. They might only be a word or two. You know, would you like to use the loo? Would you like to cup, have a cup of coffee? Would you like a bill with that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, those few words, are, next time you meet, is more words. Can you, it, it, it grows. can you imagine, John, we would have no relationship if our only relationship over the last, I've known you for a very long time now, if we'd only ever met over mm, Zoom. Wouldn't work. And, mm. and uh, 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 the big, the most dramatic example of that is uh, on this board of the bank that I'm on, where a number of the directors I had never met during lockdown and COVID. And yes. when I actually physically met them, I've formed a different view of the war, and not necessarily that much different, but an enhanced view. Yes. A word. And usually, mm. because I've, yeah, you you see people very one. You can see them as very one dimensional, and relationships require you to have to see them as people. Mm. I think. Um, all right, now I'm going to ask you a few tricky questions. Oh, right. Not that tricky, but... Um, I'll have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really about the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, which has now been operating for the last four years, and you were on the board of the Credit Ombudsman. Mm-hmm. Do you think, as somebody who has is immersed in the industry landscape, in financial services for 30, 40 years, 50 years probably, do you think just having one ombudsman service was an overall positive or negative for the for financial institutions? Well, that's a, a, a big question. Mm. I must say that um, I was very hostile to Africa originally because uh, I thought that it was biting off more than any reasonable business could chew, trying to resolve insurance complaints, credit complaints, and mortgage broking complaints. And superannuation. And superannuation. So, I mean, mm. oh, and they did a pretty awful job um, initially, but they have improved significantly and they are really dedicated to communication they meet monthly with the MFAA and I've been meeting monthly with them and there's a lot of dialogue going on and they are now moved their fee regime for mortgage brokers um, and, and small credit providers to reflect more what COSWA used to do. So um, if you have to have a single organisation, it's not a bad one in its current guise because it is open. Um, is it fair? No, it's not fair. It's still not fair. It's bi- very biased in favour of the consumer, not in their decision-making, but in the payment arrangements because the uh, financier has to pay for it. And it's How do you resolve expensive. that? Because I don't think there is a resolution. Yeah. I mean, you've got to protect mm. consumers, so it's just life, but it's not fair. And there is no appeal. But they understand that and they've now got an internal appeal procedure set up and they're starting to talk a bit more. But the problem is not the consumer. 
The problem is the consumer uh, advocates, not you, but uh, the, uh, the <laughs> lousy <laughs> lawyers who, yeah. who say, the customer comes in and says, look, I'm being sold up. And he says, we'll make a complaint to AFCA. That'll slow them down. And, uh, and that's not right. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge problem, especially when they charge huge fees yes. for doing that. Yes. And we've had a couple where um, they've taken caveats over people's homes in... Brisbane, season, yeah. Brisbane. Shocking. Anyway, um, they've tried to fix that a bit by regulating. Yeah, but still, it's a problem. Still doesn't work. And um, but AFCA recognises that that's a major problem, and they've introduced new measures to stop that. Well, it must be a real problem for finance brokers too, because the lenders will be coming after the finance brokers if there's a finance broker involved. So they're really getting pushed. Squeezed from both ends in a way. Yeah, there's bugger all complaints against brokers, as you know. Yeah. Um, but yes, they, they cop the end of the bank being lazy, perhaps, and just settling the complaint. Yes. Yeah, I, well, mm. I don't know if I. Yeah, but I do think the problem is that the responsibility for it is pushed to someone who can lease. Well, can probably might be able to afford it a bit more than the consumer, but mm. certainly mm. Um, it's um, divesting lenders of their responsibility, I think. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a worldwide thing and it's where we are. And, mm. and, and as we were talking, I think, before we started about the old days where the local bank manager was your mate yes. and sorted things out for you. And you That could... has been, and you knew him and mm. he knew you. Well, that's lost from society. I mean, I've been a customer with my bank forever, yet they have no idea who I am. And, yes. And I understand that. And there's no one I can ring. But when I was 18, I could walk into the ANZ Pit and Hunter and the manager there would welcome me and give me a cup of coffee and talk to me about my affairs. And in fact, he was silly enough to lend me money when I was 18 to... Did you pay it back? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, I actually asked Carolyn Bond, who I was speaking to, who you probably know, what questions she would ask you if um, she was in my position. And she said um, there's been some big changes about consumer advocacy and expectations of financiers in the financial services space in such areas as fairness and financial hardship. What do you think of those changes from the perspective of someone who primarily has represented industry? Um, they, they're good, I think, at the end of the day. I mean, all they've tried to do is to say that a business should be fair. Take it outside the financial industry. We want Mr. Qantas to be fair with us mm. in, in our dealings. And and Mr. Qantas wants to be fair, but he struggles to do it because of staffing issues or he claims don't have any mm. petrol or whatever the issue is. Um, and, and that's what the situation is. Banks struggle to do it because of the magnitude of the task. And... They struggle to do it because every so often they get a manager in there who is not, not necessarily misguided, but he's blinded by the profit or greed. 
and makes in, incorrect decisions. So it's it, it, it's a good check and balance. Mm. And um, but where some of these protections are getting ridiculous. I mean, to have a penalty for having a clause which is a, held to be unjust, even if you're never ever going to rely on it, mm. and it's just there because your dopey lawyer like me put it in your mortgage document or your loan agreement, is a stupid bit of law. And, right. and, and I mean, that's what happened to Adelaide Bank. They had quite good documents. Um, I don't know who prepared them. Maybe I, maybe our firm did, I don't know. Um, which went to the court and they found a whole lot of the provisions that were exactly the same as every bank had in them for the last 30 years mm -hmm. and they found them unjust. Now, they were unjust, but the Adelaide Bank was never going to... Well, hadn't relied on relied them. Relied on them. Well, we don't know. Yeah. Well, we uh, don't know. No, we don't know. We don't know. No. And they may have. And and they shouldn't be there in a perfect world, but it's mm. just because you've got a clause that some people think might be unjust in an agreement, oh, did you interpret it that way? Mm. I also think one of the things that I always think, and this is from both industry in their the way that they draft contracts, because I've been asked this question before, actually in the telco space, mm. well, how do you make something so understandable for people, say, with an intellectual disability. And my view is that you can't make documents be the only thing that will ensure that people understand. And you also have to have flexibility. And sometimes you're not going to be able to make things so watertight. I think you have to, there has to be a certain appetite for risk to... Um, be able to provide good services to people is my yes. view. Well, the difficulty mm. is in, in banking too is the there's an expectation in the capital markets if you want to securitise loans that you have addressed A, B, C, D, E, F, G mm. and that you've got those clauses in there. I mean, we try and take out unnecessary clauses Um I mean, for example, there's that clause that I re always refuse to put in, which is the reps and warranty saying, I'm a company, I represent that I'm duly incorporated. Well, if you're flaming well not, who's making the representation? <laughs> what is the point of it? Yeah. And no one's ever been able to explain that, nor any of the others. What is the purpose of the reps and warranties? To say, I'm, I don't get a rep and warranty from you before you sat down here to say I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> I want a warranty from you that you're alive and possibly COVID-free. <laughs> so um, so there's a, a lot of that rubbish that gets into documents. But uh, I was involved in the very first reverse mortgages here. I drafted them for a mob called Bluestone. And then with um, the Joy... Boy, what's his name? I've forgotten his first name. Now, uh, with for Rismark setting up the first shared equity mm. mortgages, almost impossible to draft in, in a way that a customer is going to understand. And it was the lesson that I learnt when I was a property lawyer doing leases for Woolworths. You remember that you're doing a lease for 30 years. 
you've got to somehow anticipate what the law is going to be like in 30 years. Mm, that's true. Good luck, sunshine. And you're doing mm. the same thing when you do a home loan agreement. And so when regulators get upset that I've got a clause that says I can vary this contract and insist that I have a test on it, is it reasonable? Who's going to judge that? I mean, is it going to be reasonable if the whole world changes and there's a war on or something? Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like in 30 years because there's absolutely no, very little resemblance between this world and the 60 years ago when I started the game. I mean, there was no television, you paid a radio licence, you didn't have a fridge at home, all that sort of thing. The world has completely changed in that period. In a very, relatively very short relatively period. Relatively very short time. Um, you know, I, I mean, I mean th there was no flights. You couldn't. I've never been in a plane till I was twenty-five. Why? Because you just didn't. Mm. And 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 when I went, where did I go? I, I went to Melbourne. It's very exciting. Well, it was. <laughs> um, I remember when my parents came back from. Well, my father had been in Australia before. They came back in the sixties, and my father had a very good job. He was working at the American base in Germany because he could speak English. He's a spy. He's a spy. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it was six. It was half of his salary for six months, which was the cost of his one-way ticket to Australia. Because my mum and sister, mm. older sister, came mm. as one of the last people to come into Australia on, you know, their white Australia policy or, or whatever. Yeah. Well. I don't know. They weren't poms. They no, were Germans. It was a ten dollars. Yeah, ten dollars for everybody. So um, it was it's very a lot of money, expensive. Ten dollars. Yeah. In those days, wasn't wasn't ten dollars? It doesn't sound correct. No. But you know, the first house I bought, I bought for four thousand dollars. Four thousand dollars. That probably was quite a nice house. <laughs> it was a two-story terrace in Balmain. Yeah. <laughs> Because I know how much my parents, I think my parents paid 2000 for theirs, first yeah. one in the 60s that they had yeah. here. Um, I'm going to ask you something because, as you know, at the moment, there's a, the all the conversation is at the moment on the prevention of scams. And my view is, is that the um, anti-money laundering legislation already requires banks to have reporting requirements and systems in place to detect um, money laundering. Mm. Why can't they just use those systems to detect scams? Um, a very interesting question. It does have an assumption that they've got systems that can <laughs> recognise money laundering, which I think is open to debate. I mean, it's very, very difficult, isn't it, to, mm. to work out. And I, on occasions, move very large sums of money and the bank doesn't ask. So why do they, what do they think I'm doing? Yes. When, I, when I say I move large sums of money, I run a trustee company and uh, we have there's significant assets in that company and so I might move $16 million from someone to someone else. Mm. They do ask me whether I'm sending it out of Australia, but they don't ask whether I'm sending it to the criminal organisation. Mm. 
And of course, asking is not much point anyway. If they don't know whether I'm sending it out of Australia, heaven's sake, it's your bank, boys. <laughs> I know. Well, that's outrageous. So, You're right about uh, that. Um, yeah, look, uh, scams, they're a terrible thing. And uh, my uncle, well, my wife's uncle, sent a quarter of a million dollars to Nigeria <gasps> over a period. Um, at, at the rate of two dollars a pop every couple of weeks, thought he was buying jewellery. Uh, that would have been over very long time. He wasn't an intelligent man, but we—I think we're faced with a very serious problem um, because I'm seventy-five now, and mm -hmm. uh, my brain's not as sharp as it used to be, and uh, I'm. I am part of the, I'm the oldest end of the baby boomers. Mm. Um, we're the first generation who could be running our own superannuation and certainly have access to money because we can reverse mortgage our house and so on. Yet with a typo, we can on the keyboard, we can dispose of our whole wealth. And it needs to be a check and balance against that. Uh, It'd be so easy to be affected by a bit of deliria, uh, um, what's the word? Madness, yeah. stupidity, just old ageness. And you go in there and think, oh, yeah, well, that was a nice man who just rang me. I'll send him $10,000. And you think you're doing the right thing. There's no check and balance. And I've been trying to sell a product that I developed called Argus, named after the multi-headed monster. Yeah. And the idea was that you could voluntarily set a limit above which the request make payment would be referred to Argus and Argus would bring you up and have a chat to you to make sure you were really doing a sensible thing and you meant to send it. Now, banks can't afford to do that, well, without paying an additional service. But it's like all these things, if you have to pay for services, people probably won't do it. Mm. Like with financial advice has been... But all the risk money. seems to me is because it's in the bank account. So I always think until there's some liability for the financial institutions, they're not going to be really interested in putting in the checks and balances. I wonder what checks and balances they can put though. Well, Most one of the, what, that's why I was thinking perhaps the AML, if they had the proper systems in place, which they're supposed to have to detect um, money laundering. Mm. Um, well, you put in a phone number and you send it to people. Oh, so numbers. SMS security yeah, or something. But, yes. But, the, no, there's, but even... You don't know, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm I'm, there. It's hopeless, isn't it? I know. <laughs> anyway, it's I just think all of those... Something. My I, sons use it. Yeah. One of the things... Instant, instantly transfer oh, money. So you can use your phone number to instance well, you all can, your you, you can email address. Yeah, you can yeah. use different identifiers and then you get the checks and balances that you are actually sending it to the right person so, yes. instead of just sticking in an account number and having a typo number. I mean, I made a typo once and when I used to own property, I paid my land tax by mistake to the body corporate of the home unit I was living in with the result that I prepaid my strata levies for 423 years. <laughs> 
<laughs> Luckily, they paid the Strata levies. They refunded the money to me. But it might, I might not have. Mm. I, I must have clicked the wrong remembered transferee. But it, How long I, did it take you to get the money back? Well, it took me a long time. Until the land tax office was about to sue. They, they, they never oh, right. noticed. The land tax office started writing me letters saying they're going to sue you because you hadn't paid your land tax. And I was telling them I had. And uh, they were proved right, and I was proved an idiot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they usually, they usually pretty right. The government departments on money. I think they do amazingly well. Mm. They a very complex job. Uh, I'm going to ask you. As I understand it, your partnership agreement mm. said that partners had to retire at 65. 55, I think. Well, maybe 65. 65. Yeah. Um, I failed to do so. But you failed to do so because mm-hmm. you apparently changed the partnership agreement. Yes, that's what How did that come about? Was I, there a conversation? <laughs> I can't remember, but I mean, I think that we thought at a round of... That was a bit of a joke I said to the reporter on the financial yeah. review. Um, the uh, and, and they normally print what I used to say in those days. But I think it was about the time when... My firm has always been very, very focused on um, what nowadays goes as being called woke, I suppose, in, into um, equality and, and openness. Mm. And so we thought that it was um, disadvantage to elderly people and unfair discrimination on age. So we were moved it on that basis. And do you think that the law is less ageist than other professions? Because there are quite a few people that are practising law into their 70s, 80s. We've seen yeah, quite a bit of it. Probably extremely badly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you can have a president of the United States... Yes. At that age, and you can run the United States. Look, I think we're all different. Mm. And um, I'm sure there's people that should be retiring at 65 and people who should be never got into the game in the first place. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was going to ask you, because you did speak about this just briefly before, that you think that your role now and maybe it was before we even started, that you see your role very much as a teacher. Mm. Um, And so is that what you think that you've added to the firm, staying past retirement age, is that real role as a teacher within the firm? Yes, it's all I do now, basically. Mm. Occasionally people are silly enough to think that uh, they'll ring me up and expect me to do something. (laughs) (laughs) Outrageous. And, and, uh, and in fact, I've had a lot of new clients contact me recently and I'll work with the staff to do it and that's teaching. Yes. But I don't do it anymore. Quite apart from the fact that I don't have a secretary and I'm not the world's best typist. I mean, I can type all right, mm. but that's two fingers that are worn down to stubs. Um, oh, really? So you never really typed your own... Mm-hmm. Your own well, I do. Work. I type. Yeah, but I don't type at the split blistering speed that Some young the... persons do. Right. And, and <laughs> they, they, you know, they text war and peace in the time it takes me to write, dear sir. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was. You do some fun things. I I looked at you up and I saw that you 
I had done some videos with Eloise, is it, from the firm? Eloise oh, yes, Ivory. Yeah. And yeah, that's Elise Ivory. Elise. I've got an Elise and an Eloise. Eloise, I have yeah. an Eloise uh, Casey and um, a, an Elise Ivory. Yes. And if you put EL into your Outlook, the mail will go to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Um, it's very impressive that you can make something so dry <laughs> and serious <laughs> look like fun. <laughs> I've, I've never seen the, the unfun side of anything. Mm. Um, I remember many years ago when they decided to conscript me to go to Vietnam and shoot bullets at people, but they then determined I was deaf. And so I said, what's the problem there? And they said, well, you won't hear the bullets coming. <laughs> I said, I, I thought by the time you heard the bullets coming, it was too late. <laughs> but... Uh, I ended up then doing the uh, the Good Morning Vietnam radio program for about five years, um, and the uh, it was very funny. It was it, 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 the object was to be funny, and I had some very creative people who worked with me, and uh, I've just always seen the humorous side of almost anything. And was this, when you were doing that radio program, was that here in Sydney then? Yes. Mm. Mm. And was that your way? Well, that's what I was worried about. When, they, when someone suggested it, I thought, maybe they mean Saigon. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, it was at Bondi Beach and, uh, and in William Street and the Cross. Now, that's interesting, John, because I always thought that your hearing loss had been acquired later on in life, but... No, because mm. I think that it's caused by a Vickers submachine gun when I was in the cadets at school exploding. Yeah. Or I used to be a disc jockey at a nightclub, did a bit of work there, or yeah. radio work, with headphones on, had the music too loud. And it, but, oh, but, really? But I had hearing, hearing loss, which I, I didn't feel or notice um, when I when they were about to send me off to fight a war and I failed the medical on the basis of hearing uh, and colourblind. And colourblind. Mm. And how that's did you find out you were colourblind? Well, they tested me. Oh, right, then, that, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, all right, so... I, I didn't know. I, I thought I was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking before about you joined the B&K Banking Board in 2019. Yes. Why do you think it's important um, for a bank board to have somebody like your perspective as a lawyer? Uh, well, we've got to have broad skills. Mm. Um, the uh, I think most of them have a lawyer floating around somewhere. At the time I was appointed, they didn't have any other lawyers. Um, there are legal questions that arise all the time, but a board won't, I don't know the answers to a lot of the questions, and indeed most of the no. ones that involve public laws not my go, uh, but at least you know there's a question to be asked. So I think that's the utility of lawyers. We're not, that's true. We, we don't need to know the answer, we need to know that there's a question or an issue. Uh, so that's the value you provide. Um, the, purpose of a board is to have a broad range of interests mm. and we've certainly got that. 
I wanted, I'm going to ask you a few questions that I always ask everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, but before I do that, because it's a very general question, um, I wanted to talk to you about your love of public transport um, because that's very unusual for somebody who is, a, I think, a partner in a law firm. You sort of think of them going off with, in their nice cars or perhaps if they're very well off being driven to their offices um, but you've always been a fan of public transport. Get the bus, get the Why? Why? I find it very peaceful. It's relaxing. Mm. And uh, having to battle with Sydney's traffic, why would you do it? Uh, you can get there faster half the time by public transport and you get a bit of a walk to the bus stop or the train and mm. uh, you see other people and you have time to reflect on life. Has your public transport... Um, well, you, the use of tra- public transport changed since COVID? Oh, desperately in Sydney. Mm. The, uh, so much fewer people going to town. Mm. And and so they're building all these metros to take people where one third less people want to get to. Oh, really? Mm. So it's an issue. And you were once in a, uh, was it ABC radio competition? Well, it wasn't um, so much a competition. I was driving, we were driving to work one day and my wife knew I'd like getting on buses and relaxing. And, and uh, Angela Caterns on the ABC Breakfast Program said, this man uh, has just gone on a train to go to every railway station in Sydney. And then a month later, somebody went to every ferry stop in Sydney, we want someone to do the buses. And my wife, Julie, said, that's you, that's you. And <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's something. Said, You've got to ring in and say you'll do it. Because I wanted someone to ring in and do it. Um, anyway, so um, she, we were driving to work, actually driving into work that day. And so she got, it must have been a mobile phone day, she rang up and said, my husband will do it. And I'm yelling, no, I won't. <laughs> and, and, and uh, then Angela Caturn seduced me over the airway, saying, <laughs> oh, John, you'd be so good at it. And, and it was. It was a lot of fun. And that's why you've got the nickname of Busboy, is it? <laughs> oh, I don't know that everyone's called me that. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. You ended up going right around Sydney. Yes, it was, uh, it was, it was a day, day and we, we were the, it was looking for, for a bit of sponsorship for Rotary. Mm. And uh, every... Uh, half hour, the all day long, the ABC would cross to me. And um, and then there were some very interesting consequences of it all. Uh, the uh, Every bus was exactly on time. Oh, really? Which was a bit of a miracle. And uh, I think I think they were prodding where, I, I wouldn't announce where I was going, but they couldn't, I think the, the, the chiefs, could work out where you were going to be because, oh, he's on the four, five, six now, so he must be going to get off there. And every, I was at La Perouse where I was having a bit of a break and I thought, aha, the 2.38 hasn't turned up. And all of a sudden this bus roaring at speed <laughs> with special came tearing down and came to a screeching halt. So but I think they're trying to remedy it to make sure they were all... But it was a very funny thing, and I sort of exaggerated as I went, like, uh, I was, 
ads that could turn to, because they, they would ring me up and maybe half hour I'd talk live mm-hmm. on air and they'd say, uh, are you, uh, where are you now, John? I said, oh, I'm just going past Narrabeam Public School. Half of the school's come in early and they're standing here waving with placards. <laughs> oh, come on, John, how many people are there? I said, two. <laughs> 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 Which was an exaggeration in itself. There was nobody. <laughs> All right, and then there were another few questions. Now these the the next questions are a bit more general, and that is the role of mentors, both mm. as you being a mentor for other people in your life, but the role of mentors in your own life in crafting the career that you've had. Mm. Yeah, well, there, as I say, there were these two it's our front door, so I have to pause. So what about your um, role as being a mentor for others? Um, well, as I say, it's my favourite uh, activity. Um, but I still call going to work, going to school. Probably what, what, what Julie says to me, you know, what are you doing today? I say, I'm going into school. And I've always called it school because I think you learn something every day. So you never stop being mentored. Yes. And the most unlikely people are your mentor. And uh, it's like an osmosis of the word. You get yeah. There. And I really enjoy what I've learned a tremendous amount from uh, the, uh, the five partners in my group that I report to. Uh, they each have individual skills and, and I learn something every day. And how, what, if somebody was wanting to be, like somebody wanted to be mentored by you, mm-hmm. um, do they come and approach you or what happens in the firm in terms of the younger people? Because I know that you've been really good at this over the um, years. Well, I think I in a bit of a reputation of being open, um, and therefore people just ring you up. I mean, from all over, the, not just from the Sydney office, people ring up and say, oh, John, I understand you know a bit about the credit code. I say, what? <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> uh, and you have a bit of a fun and, yeah. and they enjoy it. And I enjoy it. I, th- I think that's what makes you um, such a lovely person because I th- think you you probably uh, I mean I, I know from my perspective working on the other side I enjoy talking to you mm. it's a positive experience yeah, that's nice. and hopefully we learn from, well I've well, certainly I've learned, learned a lot things. from you girls I've got to say on the mm. uh, on the cover board you know mm. I mean, you gave me insights to the way consumers thought at a very valuable time when I was just starting to work closely with ASIC and Treasury on drafting the laws Mm. Um, and I, I think you, you, you guys made me do a, a full 90 degree turn. Um, well, you had Catherine Ewer and Cat Lane, they oh, would have yes. been, oh, well, <laughs> fiery women. <laughs> shy retiring, little sorts those. But uh, yeah, they taught me a lot um, uh, because we all see life through our own vision and there's a lot we don't see mm. and um, those insights are very valuable. That's why I think relationships are so important and not just relationships from 
your own group, but from a wider perspective as well. How do you, how have you built and maintained those, John, mm. over the years? Drinking a lot. <laughs> Partying a lot. I saw that photo. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that um, I've always felt inadequate. Um, I've always been very shy. I got taught how to behave and appear not to be shy by um, the general manager I had, a girl called Jane Beery or Jane Skinner, who um, helped me run games for many years. And, and they trained me to understand that everybody's insecure, not just you, John. Everybody's shy. Everybody has those days where they turn up at a party but really wish they'd stayed at home watching the telly or spend the entire party in the kitchen. Or as I used to do, when I used to go to dinner, after about an hour I'd be so panicked ridden I'd go and sit in the gents' lab at the restaurant for half an hour to gather myself before I came back. And when you realise that everybody's insecure and everybody thinks they're a bit short of friends, you realise that you're not Robinson Crusoe. Uh, that helps. Yeah. Helped me a lot. Um, I still want to go home and watch telly and not be at the party half the time because you think that you've got nothing interesting to say and everybody else is, seems to be so competent. But it's just, it's just a, uh, an insecurity that I think that Australian males suffer from, not women so much. And I think it's because they lack the strong bondage of friends that arise in other cultures. societies, other cultures. I actually, well, I don't know if the observation about women is accurate. In fact, I, I would say we have a lot more insecurities. <laughs> but I absolutely agree with you about male friendships in Australia. I see the difference when I've gone to Europe and the male friendship groups mm. and the things that they do together when I Amazing. talk to my relatives. And I think it's really lacking in Australia and I don't know why we never develop that culture of having of encouraging friendships mm. between males. Mm. So, I, I, yes. I, that maybe it's the, it's the stiff upper lip. I'm sure that mm. some of our new migrant groups yeah. Um, do maintain that the, the, the Greeks and, the, mm. and in particular a great sitting down having a cup of coffee and every Greek gentleman I've ever met is the most wonderful bloke you yeah. can come across. Um, the uh, A lot of males in the upper, you know, they can afford to uh, play golf and that is a very wonderful oh, escape. That's true, that's, yeah. that's a limited avenue. Uh, my solution is to actually physically organise lunches and and try and organise one lunch for about four or six guys and we get together and they become a bit of an institution. Oh, that's a lovely and, thing. Um, otherwise, I'd be sitting here alone playing with my trains. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a lovely thing to do. All right, well, what next for John? Well, I've failed to retire. Um, <laughs> I think you're going to university to do a course of how to retire. Uh, I, uh, 
I wouldn't mind having some slowing down. And uh, there's a, a, my wife gave me a card yesterday, well, a couple of days ago before she went away, which was a picture of Pooh Bear uh, standing outside his house. I love Pooh Bear. And Pooh Bear said, it's really quite wonderful to do nothing. <laughs> well, And I, I think I'm going to try and take a leaf out of my favourite bear's book. All right. Well, John, um, I hope that that wish comes true for mm. you, um, at least, well, to do a little bit less at least. Mm. Um, thank you so much for sparing the time to Thanks for giving me the opportunity to ramble on like a silly old fart. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to find out more about John, there are show notes with each of my episodes, including contact details for each of my guests on my website, www.lorettacrete.com. Please drop me a line if you have any questions or know of someone who may be interested in being interviewed for this podcast. Until next time, goodbye, friendlies. Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website, www.lorettacrete.com.